Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Thank you for joining me. On Tuesday, uh, Ohio pro-lifers encountered a setback when Issue 1 passed in Ohio. Uh, It has to be said that uh, this is the seventh uh, straight loss for pro-lifers at the state ballot level around the country, and a lot of people are wondering what that means for the future of the pro-life movement. Michael New will be joining us. He's with Catholic University of America. He's one of the keenest minds analyzing the status of the pro-life movement at this time in our history. So Michael's joining us, coming up in the first segment of today's program. We're also going to be joined by Mark Simon. Mark is a friend and business partner of Jimmy Lai, and multiple bishops from around the world have called upon Hong Kong to release Jimmy Lai, a pro-democracy activist, entrepreneur, uh, media tycoon. He's been in prison for more than a thousand days, and his trial is scheduled to begin next month. Mark is going to join us uh, to talk about Jimmy and how he's doing, and also what to expect. We're going to be joined by Peggy Stan because we will, once again, take a look at Sunday's Gospel reading. It's the famous passage about uh, the ten virgins who went to meet the bridegroom. Some of them foolishly forget to bring oil for their lamps. And uh, Peggy will go over that passage with us, taking a look at uh, how the Catechism reflects on it, as well as some other uh, communicators. And then we're going to be joined by uh, Dr. Matthew Bunsen in the second hour of today's program, it's the aftermath now of the recent synod on synodality. And leaders, well, I'll tell you, a few different things happening. Leaders of the Catholic Church in Germany are trying to frame the synod's results as an endorsement of their ongoing push for radical changes to church teaching and practice, and a justification for similar efforts that they plan to make in the coming months. This is uh, pure manipulation, it seems to me. We're going to talk it over with Matthew, get some clear idea of what's going on, and then we'll traverse the globe looking for other stories of uh, Catholic interests. So stay with me. But first, let's get today's headlines. Thank you, Al, and good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Thursday, November 9th. It's the Feast of the Dedication of St. John Lateran Basilica. And today's news is brought to you by Charity Mobile, supporting pro-life and Catholic causes at CharityMobile.com. Israel will allow daily four-hour pauses in the fighting against Hamas in Gaza. This should hopefully give some room for civilians, innocent civilians, to move out of places where there's heavy fighting uh, going on. White House Principal Deputy Press Secretary Olivia Dalton told reporters the move will allow civilians in northern Gaza to head south to safer areas and access humanitarian aid. She called the agreement a significant step. More aid is continuing to flow in through the Rafah crossing from Egypt. 
President Biden, however, told reporters while leaving the White House, there's no chance of a full ceasefire in the fighting at this time. He said he's optimistic in the effort to free the hostages held by Hamas. Multiple bishops from around the world have called upon Hong Kong to release pro-democracy activist Jimmy Lai. The signees include Cardinal Timothy Dolan of New York, Archbishop Timothy Brolio of the Archdiocese of the Military, and Archbishop Anthony Fisher of Sydney, Australia. Lai has been in prison for more than a thousand days, and his trial is scheduled to begin next month. His business partner, Mark Simon, joins us later in this hour. And fights broke out outside the Los Angeles Museum of Tolerance, where Wonder Woman actress Gail Gadot, who served in the Israeli Defense Force, organized a screening of footage from Hamas's October 7th attack on Israel. Video from Wednesday night shows several people being pepper sprayed. Israel's ambassador to the United Nations, an official with the Israeli Defense Forces, and Hollywood executives were among the 200 people in attendance. From the Ave Maria Radio.net news desk, I'm Dan McGraw. And good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Well, in Ohio on Tuesday, pro-abortion advocates had another victory in the passage of Issue 1. This represents the seventh uh, straight uh, victory that pro-abortion forces have had since the Dobbs decision. And a lot of people are wondering, uh, well, do pro-life forces have any cause for optimism here? With me right now to analyze the situation is Michael New. He's assistant professor of practice at the Bush School of Business at the Catholic University of America, a senior associate scholar at the Charlotte Lozier Institute, and a Page Comstock Cunningham fellow at Americans United for Life. Michael, good to have you back here. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. Much appreciated. Well, let's talk about this. Uh, you know, a lot of people are saying, uh, you know, this is the seventh straight pro-abortion victory for ballot initiatives at the state level. Uh, how do you look at it? Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. This is a disappointment. It is a setback. You know, this is going to make abortion policy in Ohio much more permissive. Uh, very likely, this will make abortion legal throughout all nine months of pregnancy. It certainly jeopardizes Ohio's pro-life, parental vomit law. So now minor girls are very likely, you know, in the future, be able to obtain abortions without parental permission. It may well result in Ohio's Medicaid program covering elective abortions, which will result in tax-free funding of abortion from Ohio taxpayers. So it is a setback, and we should be clear-eyed about that. Mm -hmm. But it's not cause for despair. You know, I think that one thing you know to note is that even though supporters of legal abortion have done well at the ballot box, they've not really changed policy all that much since Dobbs. Okay. You know, right now we have 14 states where preborn children are protected throughout pregnancy. We have two more states uh, that have heartbeat laws, which protect the preborn after a fetal heartbeat can be detected. None of these laws have been struck down by direct democracy. The only post-Dobbs laws that have been struck down have been through judicial rulings. Mm-hmm. So either the other side has some election victories through direct democracy. They've really not succeeded in striking down any of the very strong pro-life laws we have in place that are saving thousands of lives. So, you know, we just need to keep our chin up. You know, we're never promised a smooth glide path to victory. You know, there will be setbacks, aggravations, disappointments. But we just need to keep, you know, doing our efforts, you know, whether they be political, legislative, service, educational. Uh, we just don't have time or room for despair. Right. Right. No, I understand. And uh, what do you see on the horizon? Uh, are there any more ballot initiatives that we're anticipating? 
Well, certainly the other side is going to keep trying to do this. Uh, but I think that you know, we're in a good position. I think they're going to try Florida. But in Florida, it requires a 60% threshold to amend the Constitution. So I wouldn't say we're safe there, but we have a, a better chance to win. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the states that have these strong pro-life laws in place, these are places where, like, Joe Biden got less than 36% of the vote. Mm-hmm. So these are very conservative states you know, where I think pro-lifers are in a good position. The one state I think they're going to try, and there are efforts in place, is Missouri. You know, that is a competitive state. It's probably a little more conservative than Ohio, but in recent history, you know, there are Democrats who have won statewide election there. That said, you know, Missouri is really one of the best states in the country when it comes to pro-life activism. Mm-hmm. You know, the Archdiocese of St. Louis was actually the first archdiocese to have a full-time uh, Respect Life ministry. Um, a lot of street-level activism got to start in St. Louis. You know, the local Missouri Right to Life chapters are strong. Missouri has a very strong history of effective pro-life activism. You know, I think that, you know, if they do go to Missouri, this is a place where pro-lifers do have a good chance to win. So, again, I think we need to be clear-eyed. You know, our opponents, you know, are more motivated. They're more aggressive. But, you know, we have certainly resources to fall back on, and we just need to, again, keep up our efforts in building a culture of life. Yeah. No, I agree. Missouri had one of the great reputations uh, within the pro-life movement, a strong uh, pro-life network down there. Um, I guess I guess what I'm wondering is, do you see the, any danger of the pro-abortion forces overreaching and, and pushing for things that will um, create a boomerang effect among the uh, population? I think there's a good chance that'll happen. I mean, you know, during the Ohio campaign, you know, pro-lifers argued that this is going to undermine our pro-life parental involvement law. This might require taxpayer funding of abortion. And the other side just dismissed that. You know, they would argue the pro-life parental involvement law is safe and that Ohio taxpayers won't pay for abortions. You know, that said, you know, we have, uh, you know, Michigan and Ohio both have amended their constitutions to allow for legal abortion. We can't say for certain what will happen, but I think this does certainly jeopardize a lot of very popular incremental pro-life laws, waiting periods, pro-involvement laws. If these laws do get struck down, pro-lifers have a very good club to hit our opponents with. Yeah. I mean, we can yeah. say that, look, you know, you can't credibly say this won't you know, affect pro-involvement. Look what happened in Ohio. Look what happened in Michigan. So I think that, you know, if the courts do strike down uh, these incremental laws, that will be tragic. But at the same time, uh, it will be in some respects useful for pro-lifers politically to show that these amendments do have some far-reaching effects that I think a lot of people will, will in fact, reject. Do you have any sense of the future of uh, pro-life concerns within the Republican Party? You know, essentially, I'm a little bit disappointed that, you know, a lot of Republicans, especially the presidential candidates, just seem to be kind of abdicating any kind of a federal role for abortion. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of them just sort of want to wash their hands and say, let the states just hash this out. You know, I really do think we need some leadership, you know, even on things where there's a consensus, you know, whether it be the Hyde Amendment, you know, whether it be, you know, something like the Child Interstate Abortion Notification Act that mm-hmm. would make it illegal to take a minor across state lines to circumvent a parental involvement law. You know, essentially, we had good leadership from George W. Bush on right. the partial birth abortion ban. You know, and we had good leadership during the Clinton years on that as well, because Republicans did push the issue. Yeah. They knew it wouldn't be signed into law by Bill Clinton, but we did know it was useful for PR purposes. Right. It did right. demonstrate how permissive abortions laws were and showed really how radical 
many people in the Democratic Party actually were on this issue. So I think that you know, Republicans need to show some leadership. You know, I think they should at least push for pro-life laws or where there is a strong national consensus. You know, I think that's kind of the very least we could ask of uh, people at the federal level. Now, uh, assuming that President Trump is going to be the Republican candidate, uh, is he in a position to show that kind of leadership that you're looking for, or ought we to look for another? That's hard to say. I mean, President Trump certainly did a great job with the judicial nominee. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that, uh, he was very solid on that, and you know, we really do have him to thank for the reversal of Roe v. Wade. That said, his rhetoric on the campaign trail has concerned me and other pro-lifers. You know, he has said that when Ron DeSantis, of the governor of Florida, and you know, competitor for the Republican presidential nomination, he said that his signature of the six-week abortion ban, the Heartbeat Act in Florida, called it a terrible thing. Mm-hmm. And that's rhetoric I don't think any of us like to hear. Right. Pre-born children is not terrible. It's a wonderful thing. You know, uh, That law is kind of being held up by the courts. But that law could save thousands of unborn children. And you know, Ron DeSantis deserves credit for signing that law. You know, I think at the end of the day, you know, President Trump will realize that you know, if he is the nominee, he needs pro-life voters to win. You know, I think that, you know, there are certain things that, you know, he will do for us as a result. Mm-hmm. But I will say, yeah, his rhetoric does does concern me a bit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, among uh, plausible Republican candidates, assuming that uh, former President Trump isn't the uh, nominee, among the possible or plausible uh, Republican candidates, do any of them tower over the others in terms of pro-life commitment? I think that's kind of hard to say. I okay. mean, I, th- I think that, you know, they, any of them would certainly be better than Joe Biden. I think that's very <laughs> clear about that. Right. You know, they've all, you know, done pro-life things and voted for pro-life laws and have been solid on the issue. It's just a question of kind of leadership, I think. I mean, Ron DeSantis did sign a heartbeat bill. You know, that reflects very well on him. Mm-hmm. Uh, to some extent, I do think Nikki Haley does have some good messaging, though I really don't like it when she talks about contraception. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think that's a good strategy. I think it's, a, frankly, a totally a failed strategy. She does frequently mention that. It may pull well, but I think that that's just poor public policy. Mm-hmm. You know, as a senator, uh, Tim Scott has certainly voted for some good pro-life bills. I think he would be an effective pro-life president. You know, I think of the people on stage last night, Chris Christie would be the weakest. You know, okay. he really seemed to say this is just a state-level issue. Uh, I think of all the candidates, you know, that were kind of on stage, uh, he'd probably be the weakest of, of the five. Uh, so, but many of them, you know, even Chris Christie, though, he did defund Planned Parenthood as governor. And again, he would certainly be a better nominee than, uh, than Joe Biden would be, or right. a better president than Joe Biden would be. Right. So, uh, you know, again, I think that, you know, whoever's the nominee is going to realize that he needs pro-life voters to win. Pro-life people are a very important part of the kind of Republican electoral coalition. And, uh, you know, again, I'd like to have an articulate leader who kind of really leads on this issue. Um, I hope that happens. But I think we just have to kind of wait and see. No. And, of course, uh, there's no reason to believe that uh, there's going to be any creative thinking among Democrats when it comes to the protection of unborn life, right? I mean, there's no uh, uh, latent pro-life movement there at this time. Is that right? Well, I do want to give a quick shout-out to my dear friend, Teresa Bukovic, who actually has declared as a pro-life Democrat to run against Joe Biden. She's on the ballot in New Hampshire. Okay. So I appreciate that <laughs> Teresa's actually there uh, carrying the flag uh, for the pro-life Democrats. But no, likely, of course, uh, Joe Biden will be the nominee for the Democratic Party. And, um, you know, essentially, yeah, these, they're getting worse and worse. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, President Clinton in seven of his budgets approved the Hyde Amendment. Yeah. Uh, 
Barack Obama in all eight budgets include the Hyde Amendment. So it used to at least have a consensus among Democrats to not fund abortion with taxpayer dollars. That's gone. Joe Biden, and pretty much maybe with the one exception, every Democrat Congress only thinks abortion should be legal, but you should have to pay for it with your taxpayer dollars. So they've just gotten kind of worse and worse on this issue. I don't see any creative thinking or anything, but just more of the same, sadly, from a, at least the leadership of the Democratic Party. Yeah, yeah, no, I, that's the way it looks to me as well. Um, what do you do? You anticipate that the the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops uh, will launch any new initiatives? Uh, you know, apart from political involvement, do they have anything else that they're considering? Well, the USCCB is a few blocks away from me here at Catholic University. I yep. knock on the door and see what they're up to. That might be a good <laughs> idea. Um, you know, I don't, uh, their you know, Respect Life team is, you know, very solid and does some, you know, very impressive work, and we're, we're blessed to have them as allies. I don't, not, not aware of kind of, you know, what their priorities yeah. are, you know, okay. moving forward. At the federal level, we kind of just have to play defense. You know, we have Joe Biden in the White House. Our main goal at the federal level right now is preserving the Hyde Amendment. You know, Republicans in the House and Senate have done a good job on that. You know, I think that that saves tens of thousands of lives every year. You know, we do need to keep the federal government out of the business of, uh, you know, paying for elective abortion right. through Medicaid. So I think, you know, kind of we just have to play defense at the federal level until hopefully we elect a pro-life president in 2024. I want to thank you much, uh, Michael, once again, for you staying on top of all this. And uh, it's really helpful uh, to have your analysis here. All right. We'll talk again. Michael New is assistant professor of practice at the Bush Bush School of Business at Catholic University of America. He's a senior associate scholar at the Charlotte Rosaire Institute and a Paige Comstock Cunningham fellow at Americans United for Life. I'm Al Cresto. We'll have his contact information available, too, in the Cresto Guest Archives at AveMariaRadio.net. with Teresa Tomio. People think it's easier to stay in the muck. The devil that we know is easier than the devil we don't know, but what they don't realize is that the situation can get worse. And what we're seeing now with some of these very liberal orders, let's say, for example, these liberal orders that are dying out, especially religious sisters, dying out, literally folding. And then you have the religious orders such as the Sisters of Mary, Mother of the Eucharist, the Dominican Sisters in Nashville, the Sisters of Life in New York flooded with requests for information and to meet with the sisters about this beautiful life because they're so joyful because they are living the truth of scripture and the truth of the Eucharist of Jesus. But these people will not let go because then you have to look yourself in the mirror and then you have to surrender. I think it all goes back to the Garden of Eden. Who's God? Are we God or is God God? Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern, on EWTN Radio. What makes you happy? Truly and completely happy. Not just for a day or a year. What makes you truly, completely happy day in, year out? St. Thomas Aquinas says, God alone satisfies. Each and every one of us in the human race desire happiness. Our Creator, God, implanted that desire in our spiritual DNA so that we would be drawn to Him alone who can completely fulfill that desire. The Beatitudes respond to that yearning for happiness, says the Catechism of the Catholic Church, because they reveal the ultimate end of human acts. 
God calls us to his own beatitude, characterized variously as the coming of the kingdom of God, the vision of God, the joy of the Lord, or entering into God's rest. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. He is honored by the Church as a saint with the title of the Angelic Doctor. Matthew Bunsen and the Doctors of the Church. St. Thomas Aquinas wrote a basic textbook for young theology students that became the Church's most famous guide to the faith, the Summa Theologica. It helped him earn the title Doctor of the Church. He died in 1274. For more about the Doctors of the Church, visit doctorsofthechurch.com. Support for this Ave Maria radio program comes in part by the non-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate, or estate planning? StAnthonyServices.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at StAnthonyServices.org or 877-LIFE-US1. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health-sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. With me, Tom Holland. And good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. A little bump there at the beginning. But uh, let me say that we have... Over the last week, multiple Catholic leaders from around the world have called upon the government of Hong Kong to release prominent pro-democracy activist uh, and Catholic Jimmy Lai, who's been in prison there for nearly three years now. Jimmy's been on this program, and he's been pleading his case. He's an outspoken democracy advocate. Uh, He founded the tabloid Apple, Apple Daily, back in 1995. took a strong pro-democracy stance uh, in Hong Kong. He was arrested in August of 2020 under a controversial national security law, which was passed by China's communist-controlled government. It sharply curtailed free speech in the region, obviously an effort to quash what the Chinese Communist Party considered subversion and sedition in Hong Kong. Uh, The law has very harsh penalties, including life in prison, for what the government uh, deems sedition or terrorism including acts such as damaging public transport facilities. With me right now to kind of bring us up to, up to date on the status of Jimmy Lai, we've got Mark Simon, 
Mark is a former senior executive at Next Digital and Apple Daily, a friend, a business partner of Jimmy. And you can follow him on Twitter at MarkSimonHK. Mark, good to make your acquaintance. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Very kind of you. So how, how is Jimmy doing, just uh, spiritually speaking, physically speaking? How's he making out? Well, the first thing, to physically, he seems to be okay. Um, of course, I have left Hong Kong uh, on the 18th of April, 2020. Um, I had to leave. I was uh, uh, on, on my way out for good reason, mm-hmm. um, as we would say. But the Jimmy has seems, everybody who sees him seems to report back that physically he's okay. Now, unfortunately, um, prison's not, he's 75 years old, yeah. seems to be 76. Stanley Prison is a over 100-year-old prison. And while the Hong Kong government, at least in the prison system, is not overly brutal, it's not a good place for him. The most recent thing we've seen on Jimmy that the public would have seen is the Associated Press um, got some pictures of him um, when he was out at his exercise yard. He he looked good, but he's lost a lot of weight. Um, Jimmy's also diabetic, um, and, you know, he's had some, he's had, of course, has to take that into account. But I'd add... Spiritually, the one thing is sometimes people become very dramatic and say Jimmy's rotting in jail. Jimmy Lai is rotting nowhere. Jimmy Lai is more free in jail than he would be if he was sitting in Hong Kong. They've got him. He's in jail, but his spirit is still there. Mm. Uh, He is. That's just the way he is. He knows what he's doing. He's fully aware of what happened. Now, of course, like everybody else, he's human. And he would like to get out. Yeah. You know, he makes no bones about yeah, that. Yeah, of course. But he's not going to give them what they want. Which, And even if he gives them a confession, which unfortunately many people in Hong Kong and who've ever dealt with the Chinese Communist Party have learned, you give them the confession, it still doesn't let you off. still doesn't help you. Yeah. You know, you're still, you're still going to stay for a long time. And, and Jimmy holds a very special place in the uh, dark souls of the Chinese Communist Party, but especially the Hong Kong government. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> does he have advocates in Hong Kong? I mean, who, who's standing up for lawyer. him? Well, Jimmy, Jimmy's, Jimmy is, is very fortunate in the sense that, um, you, for your listeners, to understand how large Apple Daily was, um, you know, basically we were as large as, say, uh, uh, on, on, a, on a scale basis, we were on large number for number with, say, the New York Times, really okay. quite honest. That's large. But please understand, our market was one-tenth, one-fifteenth the size of that. So yeah. the influence yeah. was, was significant. So basically, we know a lot of people. Jimmy knew a lot of people. He, he's, he's not a poor man, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. We, have, we have really two legal teams. We have a legal team in Hong Kong which nobody deals with because the national security law would basically, if they deal with anybody on the outside, that would be seen as collusion, interference, you you name whatever the charge they want to make up. So the domestic team works on their own without any contact with anybody. In fact, they used to be my lawyers and they're a very good team. They, 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 they work hard. Now there's an international team, uh, uh, that is based in London, and in fact, they're here in New York right now, and they work on the international lobbying. And then, quite frankly, Jimmy just has a lot of a lot of people who are friends. He has uh, former Ambassador James Cunningham, 
uh, Nathan Sharansky, mm-hmm. um, all types of people, even Mike Pence, Mike Pompeo, Jack Keane, uh, who people, these are all men who, who go out of their way for him um, and, 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 and carry his water abroad. We've been very lucky in the Congress. Um, the, the UK is finally starting to catch up. I, I must say they were more concerned with commercial considerations mm. for a while, okay. but they're starting to come around now. Uh, and even the United Nations and now Canada and, and some people have, have started to have started to speak up. So he's got an international campaign, but you know, one of the places we haven't had a lot of support from disappointingly is the Vatican. And, mm. and that's why we are so excited about a letter that was circulated at the Synod, and we had people like Cardinal Dolan and Bishop Barron sign it. Yeah. And just recently, we've had uh, 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 Bishop Chaput, yeah. um, Cardinal Burke, and Cardinal Cordiello from San Francisco. Good. They have now signed on. So the goal is to get as many people as we can, um, many, as many bishops as we can, and then start pressing not so much in the Vatican, where we think, quite frankly, that's pushing a rock uphill because of the way they perceive their relationship with China. Right. But basically working with Catholics and Catholic lawmakers all across the board, we work with everybody, to try to bring, to bring pressure, to let the Chinese know, look, it's over, Hong Kong's done, but you're holding this guy, and there's no purpose in it. Right. And, and I think when people see the charges against Jimmy, a lot of times I have to explain the charges multiple times um, so people don't think that we're kind of like trying to put one over on him. Yeah. You know, yeah. these are charges in a communist regime. So basically, if you don't like them, that's enough yeah. for them to do that. What, what, give us a, just a quick outline of the charges. Well, right, he isn't, he, he just finished, he's finished sentencing for public demonstrations. So he was involved in the demonstrations of 2019. He got the maximum, almost the maximum sentences across the board. So he was in jail for about two years. Then we had a very unique thing that I was charged along with him in, um, where they basically turned a commercial lease violation into a national security crime. And he got five years for that. And that's just the way to dirty him up. The, the yeah. State Department and the U.K., everybody sounded off on what they think of that thing. That's just the way it goes in unfree countries. Yeah. Um, and so he's serving that. But the next trial that comes up, and it's coming up, we, we, December 18th is when it's scheduled for. Now, they've pushed it four times. This will be the, if they push it this time, it'll be the fourth time. You know, they, they've canceled it. Um, it's the national security law trial, and this is where he has a charge against him for violating the national security law. It's almost a certain conviction. In other words, they, they've got a they've got a one hundred percent conviction rate right on now, magically. One. Yeah, no. and on on, on on national security, and so essentially, national security is what they say it is, and so they're going to try Jimmy based on collusion with others. He met with met with certain foreign visitors, dignitaries, senators. And then also him talking to people, and then mostly, basically the activities of his newspaper, Apple Daily, uh, publishing materials which were detrimental to the um, Hong Kong government and the People's Republic of China. So when you read the charge sheet, it, quite frankly, it reads out of something like the 1970s in the Soviet Union. You know, just a little bit better English. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, why are they so afraid of him? Well, I think the thing really is, is Apple Daily, you know, imagine it's this large newspaper organ 
that never really gave in. I mean, really, from when it first formed in 1995 and three, four years before that, our big magazine, Next Magazine, Jimmy's always been, he's always been on a, a thorn in their side. He had his political awakening in 1989. And, and I think the, the year of Tiananmen Square. Yes, that's right. Yeah, and the collapse of the, the Soviet Union. Soviet Union. I think the real thing that we have to remember with Jimmy is, essentially, he is he is a believer in democracy, free markets, rights of others, religious freedom, mm-hmm. and he states it very clearly. And it's hard for us sometimes because I know in our world, everybody gets to go home after the argument. <laughs> that's not the way it works in, right. in 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 regimes like China and Hong Kong. And other places I've been in, like Myanmar or even now Russia. In mm-hmm. other words, when they take you down, they can't take any threat. It's it's hard for it's like I said, it's so hard for me to describe. Sometimes I feel like I'm from another world when I say they can't take anything. They can take zero dissidents. They just can't have it. And Jimmy is a mountain yeah. of co- of dissidents for them. To, so they can't have him. But the easiest thing now probably for them would probably be just to release him. In other words, they are creating a martyr. Um, he's, he's sitting there. He's becoming more popular in China. I right. must say Jimmy was very much a, a, Hong Kong, a Hong Kong issue. But recently when I bump into former dissidents or like I'm at meetings and I see people from China who just happen to find a way to see you, they say, you know, he is a growing presence there. And so, you know, for the Chinese – He's not a problem for mainland China right now. He's much more of a problem for Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. But the Chinese oversee Hong Kong. So hopefully we will see uh, some change. But that only comes with pressure. That only comes with people saying to the Chinese, look, if you want to have a normal relationship with us, which they do, if you want to trade with us normally, then you know we just can't stand this behavior. And the other thing I'd add is we still have 1,500 people in prison in Hong Kong. There's more prisoners in Hong Kong per person than any place else in the world. Really? More than North Korea, wow. political prisoners. Did and and so this is this, this super prosperous town, this modern city. And, you know, and, I, and I, know, I know 30, 35 of these people, enough to where you know, we would always talk, and then I'm familiar with another 50 or 60 more you know, because I lived there for so long and I worked mm-hmm. in a major newspaper. Yeah. So yeah. it's really, it's really not good. Uh, about 15 seconds left. Is the United States doing anything uh, to put pressure on uh, China or Hong Kong? In, in fairness, in fairness, we are getting good support from the State Department and good support from the National Security Council. Okay. The problem is every time, and it's, we've seen this for years, and we saw it everywhere, is every time we are getting close to getting pressure, we seem to have this trade comes up, some incident comes up, and now, for example, APEC. We're trying to get President Biden to say something on APEC, mm. not just on Jimmy Lai, but on the Uyghurs, okay. on anybody, and magically the Treasury Department. Mark, thanks. This program is brought to you by the following nonprofit underwriter. Finding health care for yourself and your family can be isolating and confusing. That's why the Catholic Health Alternative, CMF Curo, is offering Christ-centered health sharing for individuals and families, along with new wellness services to help heal and restore your whole person, spirit, mind, and body. Visit cmfcuro.com to find out more. That's cmfcuro.com, where you can experience Christ's healing love in your health and wellness. 
The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and his gospel by word and the testimony of life in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street, sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit streetevangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization. Ciao amici, Teresa Tamio here. If you're looking for something inspiring to give to someone this Christmas season, or maybe just a little stocking stuffer for yourself, make sure to check out the Ave Maria Radio online store. Plenty of books are sale to teach, inspire, and renew your connection with God. Speaking of sales, my book, Everything's Coming Up Rosie, is 25% off this month while supplies last. So go ahead over to AveMariaRadio.net and click on the bookstore. Happy shopping. The Wisdom of Mother Angelica. You remember the time I said on the air, go to confession. And when you're done, go out and have a big ice cream soda. Celebrate. And a man wrote to me, he said, you know, I hadn't gone to confession in 30 years. Do you mind if I went and had a pizza? (laughs) I said, oh, have 20 pizzas. EWTN. Live Truth. Live Catholic. 60 on 10 with Monsignor Charles Pope. The Eighth Commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. At one level, the reputation a person has is one of their most precious gifts. And to intentionally harm the good reputation of someone is a very grave matter. We can do this often through detraction by disclosing others' faults without a valid reason or calumny just outright lying about other people, likewise through rash judgment. This commandment also protects the truth, which is another very, very great good. To lie is to speak something that we know is false with the intention of deceiving others. We ought to be dedicated to the truth. It is the truth that sets people free, while errors and lies entrap people in many difficult and often sinful situations. The Lord asks us to give witness to the truth of the gospel. This commandment, therefore, asks us to stay dedicated to the truth and to other people's reputation. The Eighth Commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. For more about the Ten Commandments, visit EWTNRC.com. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popchak. Catholic family life is a liturgy. Liturgy is a word that means a public act of worship. And for Catholics, liturgy is an act of worship established by God and intended to heal the damage that sin does to our relationships with Him and each other. For instance, the liturgy of the Eucharist is God's way of restoring communion with Him and making communion with others possible. Well, when we bring that Eucharistic grace home by looking for little ways we can share Christ's sacrificial love with our family each day, we celebrate the liturgy of domestic church life, the liturgy that helps God heal the damage sin tries to do in our homes, at the very root of human relationships. To discover more ways your family can celebrate the liturgy of domestic church life, check out the newest editions of Parenting with Grace and visit CatholicCounselors.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me Family Man. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit CatholicCounselors.com. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta, and we do our weekly look at this Sunday's Gospel. It's where Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven to ten virgins who went to meet the bridegroom. Some of them foolishly forgot to bring oil for their lamps, 
prompting the warning that we must stay awake, for we know not the hour when the Lord will return. My guest will be our friend Peggy Stanton, author of From the White House to the White Cross. Peggy is a dame of the Order, Order of Malta, ABC News' first female Washington correspondent, and has hosted many programs on Ave Maria Radio, including the Malta Minute with the Catechism. Uh, her first book was The Daniel Dilemma, The Moral Man in the Public Arena, and her newest book is The Order of Malta, Minutes with the Catechism. Peggy, good to have you again. Thank you, Al. Good. Very good to be here. This we're reading from Matthew chapter 25, uh, a very a very intense chapter, uh, <laughs> by the way. And um, I will read uh, verses 1 through 13 of Matthew 25 just to lay out the gospel for us. Jesus told his disciples this parable. The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones, when taking their lamps, brought no oil with them, but the wise brought flasks of oil with their lamps. Since the bridegroom was long delayed, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight there was a cry, Behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins got up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise ones replied, No, for there may not be enough for us and you. Go instead to the merchants and buy some for yourselves. While they went off to buy it, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went into the wedding feast with him. Then the door was locked. Afterwards, the other virgins came and said, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. But he said in reply, Amen, I say to you, I do not know you. Therefore, stay awake, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Wow. Matthew 25, <laughs> 1 to 13. That is a punchy ending there. Yeah, yeah. Rather <laughs> ominous. Yes. I, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I'm, as, as we go over this gospel, I'm, I'm thinking... Uh, which side of the ledger I'm on. <laughs> and I think that uh, everybody should consider that thought. I think that's the intention. <laughs> I think that's the intention of this reading, yes. It, it scares me a little that, that I sound sometimes more like the foolish virgin yep. version. The virgins, I'll get that word out next week sometime. <laughs> Um, well, well, tell me what you've been what you've been finding on this passage through the Well, week. usually we start with the interpretation from the catechism, but it's pretty heavy the um, the interpretation from the catechism, and it's more doctrinal. So I thought uh, we needed to go into the uh, historical context, okay. like we did last week. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to start with our friend. Uh, theologian um, professor John Berksma yeah. uh, from his book uh, Word of the Lord because he's awfully good at setting up the uh, the, the uh, context mm -hmm. and uh, what what uh, life was like in the first century yeah. Yeah. Um, he says the bridegroom is obviously Jesus right. who is identified as such by John the Baptist he says this image has its roots in the depiction of the Lord as the husband of Israel in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. So why the virgins? Right. Now, this is what the big question has always been in my mind. Historically, this would have been young women, companions of the bride, essentially bridesmaids. Mm -hmm. 
But in this parable, it is almost like they are all brides of the bridegroom because they represent the church, Christian believers, all of whom are individually the spiritual brides of Jesus and corporately the one bride of Christ. The five wise and five foolish maidens do not represent, I think this is quite interesting, uh, Christians versus those who reject Christ, but rather Christians who persevere and those who do not. Okay. All ten are virgins, which refers to the Christian life in which we abstain from all that is impure and unlawful, not just impure sexuality, but all sensual indulgence that is contrary to God's law and to the rule of law. Yeah, this is this is important because we're talking about these are all the virgins, the foolish and the wise, can be considered yeah. members of the body of Christ. They're all among the baptized. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, I, and I'm not sure that we would pick that up uh, in just a casual read of the right. gospel, right? Right. No, I agree. Virginity here is a symbol of the general temperance and self-control that characterizes the Christian life. It is never, I don't know if I agree with him on this, okay. it isn't, it's never right to indulge in pleasure for pleasure's sake alone, which I raise the question, does it mean I can't have a cappuccino just for the, for the joy of having a yeah, I, cappuccino? <laughs> yeah. he, he says that doesn't mean the Christian life is without pleasure, but simply the pleasure should be accepted gratefully from God. Well, well, <laughs> I I, this is the way. This is the way to handle that. Okay. Yeah. You thank God for the cappuccino, and you, you <laughs> and you remember that at His right hand are pleasures forevermore. <laughs> so the cappuccino will remind you of heaven. Then, where <laughs> <So. laughs> the Lord will make me a cappuccino. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. I I I'll take that. Uh, <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, he, we we do say it gratefully from God as we pursue his kingdom and his righteousness, or to put it another way, love of God and love of neighbor. As we pursue the dual love, there will be times of joy and pleasure, even physical pleasure, but we don't seek after it as an end in itself, which would be selfishness and the denial of love. Hmm, I'll think about that next mm -hmm. time I want a cappuccino. <laughs> uh, <laughs> notice that all ten are virgins, that is, they are Christians, who've adopted the lifestyle of love rather than sensuality, and all ten have lamps, which the church fathers usually associate with good works. Hmm. I hadn't realized that. No, I didn't either. I, I, that's, I find the, uh, this, um, you know explanation very uh, enlightening so the distinction between the wise and foolish virgins is not between believer and unbeliever but between the persevering disciple and the non-persevering similar to the distinction between the good seed and seed that fell on rocky soil mm -hmm. the church fathers expended a lot of time trying to figure out what the symbolism of the oil was 
Bergsmith thinks it was not a one-for-one -one correspondence. He thinks the point is that the wise version, virgins, I'm having trouble with that word, <laughs> <laughs> were uh, virgins are therefore like the man who didn't count the cost before beginning to build a tower. That is a disciple who is not prepared for the endurance that it will take to remain faithful until death or the Lord's return. I think that's a very good message for mm -hmm. our time. Yeah. yeah. The basic message is that the wise disciple of the Lord not only practices temperance and good works, which are non-negotiable for any true disciple, but is also prepared to keep up this lifestyle or vigilance for as long as it takes to meet the Lord face to face. The foolish virgins do not plan for the long haul. They do not expect to have to wait and endure. So then he asks, for what, what is the symbolism of the oil? Some church fathers, he says, identify it with charity, since without charity, chastity, temperance, and good works are nothing. Others identify it with joy based on the motif of the oil of gladness, which is in the Old Testament. It can also fit with the Holy Spirit because throughout the scripture, oil is associated with the Holy Spirit. In fact, the ritual of anointing with oil symbolizes being endowed with the Spirit of God. Furthermore, the Holy Spirit within is the source of our charity and of our joy and of course joy is one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. So in this sense uh, Bergsma says the foolish virgins are those who do not take along enough of the spirit to endure until the coming of the bridegroom. This could re represent trying to live the Christian life in our own power and our own flesh, but that cannot last. Only those virgins endure who have learned to rely on the oil of the Holy Spirit to keep their lamps of good works alight, working with the strength of God and not in their own strength. Then in, uh, Bergsma goes on to say, the way to fill up with reserves of the oil of the Spirit is through prayer, faith, and the sacraments. All three, not missing a one, because prayer and sacrament without faith are not effective, nor faith and sacraments without prayer mm -hmm. are effective. Mm -hmm. These three are a cord of three strands, not easily broken, that continues to refill us with the oil of the Spirit. I like this, the cold and joyous Christian cannot maintain his spiritual life until he sees the Lord. Love and joy give us strength and energy, which is perhaps why Pope Francis emphasizes the joy of the gospel so frequently. Mm -hmm. So, um, have you th any thoughts before I give you um, yeah, I, the catechism? No, I, I mean, I, I think what you said there, and I think what Bergsma is saying, makes a great deal of sense. Again, part part of this is we don't when we think of virgins, we're not 
we have a fairly literal definition of that, and so we're not mm-hmm. accustomed to thinking metaphorically about the virgins. Right. And so you've got the same problem here with the lamp and the oil. And mm-hmm. uh, but I, I think that uh, there's there's no doubt this has to. He who endures to the end shall be saved. Right. Mm-hmm. This is again a, a, one of the Lord's sayings, and I think that's ap- ap- applicable to this situation. The wise virgins uh, have what it takes to endure to the end. They've mm-hmm. received the Spirit in such measure uh, that they're not burning off their own fuel. They're being powered mm-hmm. by the mm-hmm. Holy Spirit. So, And you can apply. The reason I said that uh, I think it's an important message for our time, because we're surrounded by a culture that is uh, preaching an opposite message, and people... Well, for instance, politicians who are trying to succeed in their trade uh, are very tempted not to persevere to the end because um, the message of the gospel is opposite the message of uh, today's society, Mm -hmm. particularly on abortion. Um, And so, uh, say, someone who's a, a, a good likes to think they're a good Christian uh, is very tempted to fudge and not persevere and not speak out strongly uh, as they should. Right. I, I do think, I think this has always been a problem for Christians. Uh, they they can <clears throat> they can go off and separate themselves from the world or they can accommodate themselves to the world. They're mm-hmm. always with that tension. Right. And of course, the, the Christian who's walking in faith and by means of the Spirit is neither a separatist nor an accommodationist, mm-hmm. but they're a transformationist. Yeah, they're, <laughs> they're engaging like the world yeah. in order to, in some way, bear witness to the kingdom, mm-hmm. which is transformative. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it, do we have time for uh, No, we don't, actually. I just, I just looked up at the clock there. We're going to hear the music come up in just a minute. <laughs> <laughs> um, but this is, a, again, a rich passage, uh, colorful, and uh, a ch- it's meant to be a challenge. Mm-hmm. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day, day nor, nor the, the hour. Hour. That is meant to make us shake a little bit in our boots. Mm-hmm. So. And I am. <laughs> <laughs> Peggy, thanks. <laughs> Thank you, Al. We'll talk soon. <laughs> Peggy Stanton, again, looking at Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 13. I'm Al Cresto. We need your help. Hello, I'm Marianne Kuharski, Director of Pro-Life Across America. In my 30-plus years, I've never seen such a concerted attempt to silence our efforts and at a time when it's most needed. There's a powerful effort to prevent and block our pro-life messages. Our billboards, social media, and digital ads are all impacted. Unplanned pregnancies still happen. Our ads feature a hotline number connecting callers with more than 3,000 pregnancy support centers across America, offering alternatives to abortion, free ultrasound, and pregnancy help. Babies' lives are being saved. The need still exists. It really does. And Pro-Life Across America needs your help. To donate, please find us at prolifeacrossamerica.org. Did you know I could suck my thumb before I was born? Yep, we all started small. With so much going on in the world, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. What do you need to know today? 
Stay tuned to Cresta in the Afternoon and Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio as we bring you the day's top stories and conversations from an authentic Catholic perspective. There was no single event. It was more gradual. You know, eventually you just don't go one Sunday and then you don't go two Sundays in a row. Then went through a divorce and um, ended up being a single parent. If I didn't have church or God, I, I, I would be back at that lonely stage, that trouble stage. Whenever you get anxious and worry about things, you just know that Jesus has it under control. If you've been away from the Catholic Church for any reason, visit catholicscomehome.org. Never miss an episode of Cresta in the Afternoon. Subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also listen on demand at AveMariaRadio.net and on the Ave Maria Radio app. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta, thanking you for being with me this first hour. We've got, uh, coming up the next hour, Dr. Matthew Bunsen. This, the first synod on synodality uh, is over. Uh, they've broken up the assembly. People have gone home. But what comes next? And I think this is the question that we legitimately ought to ask. Uh, we also now have the summary report, which calls for greater co-responsibility uh, in the church. Uh, we also have the Germans claiming that somehow the Synod on Synodality lends plausibility to their radical proposals. We'll talk with Matthew about that and much more. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Well, welcome to this afternoon. I'm Al Cresta, and we've got an hour ahead of us with Dr. Matthew Bunsen taking a look at the church around the world. The First Synod on Synodality Assembly is over, uh, and it's perfectly... uh, legitimate to ask, well, what comes next? Uh, There are many unanswered questions about the next steps in the process. Uh, The Synod synthesis document that was published uh, about two weeks ago now calls for the bishops' conferences to play an important role in encouraging theological and pastoral reflection on the most relevant and urgent issues and proposals that are outlined in the document uh, and I fine that that's fantastic. But I keep coming back to this question: Isn't that what we were all supposed to be doing already? In other words, what is the synod on synodality asking that wasn't already expected of Catholics? And so we're going to, uh, again, talk with Matthew about that. And, th- and there are those, you can rest assured, there are those who are trying to uh, manipulate the reporting uh, on this uh, synod to achieve their own private aims. And I think um, the, the leaders of the church in Germany, for instance, have been eager to frame uh, the synod's results as an endorsement of their ongoing push for radical changes to church teaching and practice. Uh, 
some German Catholics didn't even wait until the synod's concluding mass before they began pushing this idea and advancing their narrative. So we'll talk about that, the manipulation uh, of the synod. Pope Francis has called for what is called a paradigm shift in Catholic theology. Uh, This is worth looking at. Not sure all that it means. He's talking about widespread engagement with contemporary science, culture, and people's lived experience. Of course, good theology is aware of all these areas. We knew that before this call for a, quote, paradigm shift. So again, I'm not sure what's really being asked for here. But there's more to talk about. Matthew joining us in just a few minutes. Right now, though, let's get the headlines. Thank you, Al, and good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Thursday, November 9th. It's the feast of the dedication of St. John Lateran Basilica. Today's news is brought to you by Charity Mobile, supporting pro-life and Catholic causes at CharityMobile.com. Israel will allow daily four-hour pauses in the fighting against Hamas in Gaza. It should hopefully give some room for people, civilians, innocent civilians to move out of places where there's heavy fighting uh, going on. White House Principal Deputy Press Secretary Olivia Dalton told reporters the move will allow civilians in northern Gaza to head south to safer areas and access humanitarian aid. She called the agreement a significant step. More aid is continuing to flow in through the Rafah crossing from Egypt. President Biden, however, told reporters while leaving the White House, there's no chance of a full ceasefire in the fighting at this time. He said he's optimistic in the effort to free the hostages held by Hamas. Police in Detroit say a suspect has been taken into custody in connection with the death of a local synagogue leader. Police Chief James White announced the arrest on Wednesday. Samantha Wool was found outside her home with stab wounds on October 21st. White had previously said there was no evidence that surfaced suggesting her death was related to anti-Semitism. In a statement, White said the details of the investigation will remain confidential. And a new study suggests cats are not really all that aloof and are actually quite expressive. Researchers at UCLA began studying felines in 2021 to learn more about how they communicate and found that cats displayed at least 276 different facial expressions. About 46% of those were friendly, 37% were aggressive, and 17% were ambiguous. The study's co-author says she's considering creating an app that would allow people to record their cat's facial expression to determine what feelings they're expressing. From the Ave Maria Radio.net News Desk, I'm Dan McGraw. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Joining me, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, Executive Editor and Washington Bureau Chief for EWTN News. Uh, Matthew has been active in Catholic social communications and education for well over 20 years now. He's the author or co-author of more than 50 books, including the first English-language biography of Pope Francis and the Encyclopedia of Catholic History. Um, He has written also, uh, 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 we have a pope, um, Benedict XVI, and the Saints Encyclopedia, um, a biography of St. Damien of Molokai, uh, he's done a tremendous, a wide range of publishing over the years, and I'm delighted to have him with me now as we take our look 
uh, what's uh, happening church-wise around the globe. Matthew, good to have you here. Thanks. Always great to be with you. And I think the last time we talked, we had all sorts of communications problems because I was in Rome. You were in Rome. That's right. And, and in fact, <laughs> yeah. the, 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 we'll pick it up there. Uh, yeah, that's <laughs> ironic. The first synod on synodality is over. Um, yes. And so people want to know what's coming next. There is the um, synthesis document that was published, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, two weeks ago or ten days ago. Um, so let, what can we say with some degree of certainty at this point uh, about what comes next? Well, I think the, the most certain thing we can say is that uh, we're not entirely sure what's coming next. Okay. Uh, I, I say that because uh, you noted um, in your introduction to this hour that uh, there are those who are already moving to try to steer or to manipulate or yeah. to frame uh, the results. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're speaking, of course, about the, the Germans and their ger- German synodal path. Right. Having said that, uh, we do have the synthesis report uh, that was released on October 28th that brought to a conclusion this first phase uh to use the sports analogy we are at halftime yeah uh and now we have basically 10 months uh to prepare for the next session of the synod on synodality which will be in october of next year we have the synthesis report um i think you and i talked briefly about a lot of that uh that was released Uh, first in italian it took some time for it to be released in english so we know all the topics that were approved for discussion, and those now are supposed to serve as the foundation, the launching point uh, for discussions back in dioceses and different stages and phases that will lead to another blueprint for the next synod, which is called the Instrumentum Laboris, just as we had an Instrumentum Laboris for the last one. So we, in fairness, we do have some idea of what's coming. The question is going to be what this looks like on these parish, diocesan, national, continental, and as Father Raymond D'Souza calls, planetary uh, stages of this synod. Yeah, uh, I think this is... So here we're talking about some structural changes, new commissions, for instance. Um, That's right. And so, okay, fine, new commissions. Who's going to choose the members? How often are they going to meet? You know, when are they going to meet? Where are they going to meet? And uh, I, as I read this over, so here's, here's what happens. I, I find myself reading what they want to uh, accomplish. So they want to make sure that um, we're bearing, being better uh, witnesses to the kingdom. Uh, we are to be more mission-oriented. Uh, be engaging in dialogue and communal discernment. And I keep saying to myself, though, we already knew that we were supposed to be doing these things. <laughs> there yeah. is the great commandment, yes, the great mandate. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm saying to myself, okay, um, all these things, I, I have no disagreement that these are wonderful objectives and aims, and we, we can, if we have better ways of doing it, fine. But I, I don't understand what was discovered that would enable us to achieve these objectives um, more certainly than what we were already engaging in. Yeah, and here I think we, we've run headlong into what has been from the very beginning, and we can go back 
technically to 2015 when Pope Francis first really began to focus on synodality when he marked uh, the, some of the key anniversaries of the, the council uh, where he gave this uh, great talk, a very famous talk on synodality and began the process of defining it. But I especially go back to 2021 when we embarked on this multi-year process of synodality mm-hmm. where Pope Francis himself has been at some pains uh, to define it. And he, he talks about it as uh, a style, as a way of the church to live. Uh, and he has also stressed, especially of late, uh, in the, the months leading up to the Synod, the importance of synodality as an instrument of evangelization. Mm-hmm. That this is supposed to, to and his goal is for this to position us to evangelize better in a world facing so many challenges and so many problems, and at a time when the church too is roiled and in many ways convulsed with internal challenges and problems. Where one of the challenges has been, uh, it's, it's twofold. I think first, the difficulty that has been present, even in this synthesis document, in defining in very precise terms synodality. We had the then Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith taking a stab at it several years ago uh, in order to help clarify some of this. That really didn't help. We had, as well, uh, clear statements uh, at the start of the Synod that uh, people are still struggling to understand the definition. The report itself tried to give a definition, but it readily acknowledged that it's still difficult to know what it is. So we're at cross-purposes in some ways. We have Francis's vision, which he has been very firm on, that this is his synodal journey for the church. But then, because of the ambiguous nature of, and the the problems that we've encountered, uh, that have attended the synodal process, we have many people first deeply filled with anxiety over where this could lead, and that played out very dramatically at times in the Senate itself. But then we have those who are indeed deliberately trying to manipulate this ambiguity to their own purposes. Yeah. Let, let's actually let's go directly to the Germans on this. Yes. Because that's, uh, they certainly have been vocal uh, about claiming, con- you know, they're trying to demonstrate continuity between their process <laughs> and what we just saw at the uh, Senate on synodality. Um, what's the argument that they're making? Well, essentially what they're saying is uh, that, uh, and this this happened actually, I think, the, the very morning after uh, the, the Synod wrapped up its work. So this is essentially the day that Pope Francis was uh, celebrating the closing Mass of the Synod. And I, I really want to get to that homily because I think there's something instructive in there uh, for this process from Pope Francis. But they're basically saying uh, that they have been endorsed uh, by the way that all of this played out. Uh, They are arguing that uh, so many of the issues uh, had been discussed and that uh, there was a confirmation, they're claiming, of the synodal path in Germany. And that uh, those that uh, were talked about by the Germans now note, even they have to say, uh, that these were important issues throughout the universal church. Note that they're not necessarily saying that the synod itself was prescriptive in embracing what the German synodal path wants, Mm -hmm. but uh, they're claiming that uh, this is the path that they've been on and this is the path they're going to stay on, and they're arguing uh, that there are some elements, especially in the synthesis document, that 
validate what they've done. I, I think in particular of the idea of so-called anthropological categories. Yeah, I was going to bring this up. Yeah. Because uh, others are saying this, too. This was Bishop Beitzing uh, claiming that the report's language about anthropological categories was a ringing endorsement that an overwhelming majority of the universal church is open to a, a kind of thorough revision of sexual ethics. Uh, I, I came across statements by um, Spadaro, who's been an advisor to Pope Francis, claiming that uh, we have to re really rethink our whole anthropology mm -hmm. based on discoveries of the social sciences. And, uh, and there's also... Uh, and there's also, this is connected with the claim that Pope Francis is calling for a, quote, paradigm shift in theology. Yes. Uh, but which, again, you have to ask, okay, you're talking about what? Uh, are you talking about engaging with contemporary science and culture and people's lived experience? Well, if so, um, theologians do that. <laughs> I mean, this is not this is not new. So, right? Is it that you don't like the answers they've been coming up with? Well, adding to uh, the observation about anthropological categories, we had in the social the embrace of the social sciences. We had very famously, controversially, uh, the relator general. In other words, the cardinal who's in charge of yeah, shepherding Hollerich, this whole process, yeah. Jean Claude Hollerich of uh, Luxembourg. Uh, who basically said at one point that uh, we need to embrace the, the social sciences with regard to uh, Catholic sexual ethics. He said in particular homosexuality because he felt that it, the, the church's teachings are outdated. Yeah. Now, he, he tried to clarify that he was not proposing an abandonment of this, but you're absolutely right that uh, there are those who would interpret those comments uh, and then seizing on the idea of these anthropological categories. And, and then in the, the synthesis report itself, it says that uh, people are not able to grasp, as they put it, the complexity of the elements emerging from experience or knowledge in the sciences, and therefore they require greater precision and further study. Now, it's observed that, yes, we, we can use these sciences uh, to provide uh, a better way of translating things into pastoral yeah. practice or yes. to inform what we're doing. Mm -hmm. and, and that is certainly consistent. Uh, but what the Germans are proposing is that what they are suggesting is what the Senate is now calling for in the area of these anthropological categories. And, of course, what they have called for openly is a complete abandonment of the church's teachings on sexuality. Yeah. Uh, the human anthropology, basically, uh, especially where it comes to uh, homosexuality, in particular homosexual acts, we, we want to be specific here, mm -hmm. uh, as well as the ordination of women, uh, the an end to priestly celibacy, uh, and one of the big keys for them, and this I think was the biggest concern coming out of the Synod and in the discussions in the Synod, the question of authority and ecclesiology in the life of the church. Yeah. So for them, this is it's just full speed ahead, and they are plowing forward, apparently, with these uh, ideas of a central committee, uh, despite the fact that the, the Vatican itself has said that that has no bearing and is completely contrary to the church. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we'll come back, continue the conversation. My guess is uh, Dr. Matthew Bunsen. We're in the aftermath now of the Synod on Synodality. This summary report is out. Uh, we have... The Germans acting like a faction, uh, trying to uh, claim that the results 
validate their own push for radical change. How does freedom affect our actions? According to the Catholic Catechism, freedom makes us responsible for every act that we have directly willed. Despite her efforts to place all the blame on the serpent, Eve was directly responsible for initiating and committing original sin. She knew God had forbidden her to eat from the tree of good and evil, yet she did it anyway. Cain deliberately killed his brother Abel. King David deliberately committed both adultery and murder. None of the three were ignorant of the gravity of their acts, and there were no mitigating circumstances that diminished their responsibility. However, David was particularly remorseful when confronted with his guilt. The Catechism tells us that the right to the exercise of freedom, especially in moral and religious matters, is an inalienable requirement for the dignity of the human person. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Dr. Ray Garendi. Two of the hardest words to say in the English language. I'm sorry. I'll ask couples, when was the last time you said I'm sorry? Oh, uh, I think it was our wedding rehearsal dinner. I, I spilled some coffee on her lap. I said, hey, sorry about that. Why is I'm sorry so hard to say? What does it mean to you? Are you saying you're a failure? Are you saying I'm wrong? Are you saying, if I say I'm sorry, I'm admitting it's all my fault. I'm sorry are two of the softest words in a relationship in the English language. I'm sorry, very hard to say, very easy on relationships. This program is brought to you in part by Charity Mobile, a proud partner of Ave Maria Radio for over 15 years. Charity Mobile is the pro-life cell phone company and has sent nearly $2 million to thousands of pro-life charities. 4G LTE coverage is available nationwide, and 5% of your monthly plan price goes to your favorite pro-life charity. A video introduction is available at CharityMobile.com. Charity Mobile, everyday living, effortless giving. CharityMobile.com. It's not over. Unplanned pregnancies still happen. I'm Marian Kuharski, Director of Pro-Life Across America. In my 30-plus years, I've never seen such a concerted attempt to silence our efforts and at a time when it's most needed. There's a powerful effort to prevent and block our pro-life messages. Our billboards, social media, and digital ads are all impacted. Our messages feature a hotline number connecting callers with more than 3,000 pregnancy support centers across America, offering alternatives to abortion, free ultrasound, and pregnancy assistance. Babies' lives are being saved. The need still exists. It really does. And Pro-Life Across America needs your help. Please find us at ProLifeAcrossAmerica.org. Did you know I could suck my thumb before I was born? Yep, we all started small. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Finding good health care, encouragement for healthier living, or solid spiritual direction can be frustrating. That's why the Catholic healthcare alternative, CMF Curo, is offering a health sharing option. Curo's Christ centered wellness services include Catholic wellness coaching, spiritual direction, and a Catholic community supporting your health and wellness needs. Visit cmfcuro.com to learn more. <laughs> 
That's cmfcuro.com, where you can experience Christ's healing love in your health and wellness. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Matthew Bunsen. We're taking a look at stories uh, about the church around the world. Our focus has been uh, still in the aftermath of the Synod on Synodality and um, Pope Francis calling for a paradigm shift in Catholic theology that takes widespread engagement with contemporary science, culture, and people's lived experience as an essential starting point. And again, I would say... uh, not sure what to say uh, about this. I mean, certainly divine revelation is considered basic datum for a theologian. Uh, uh, Think of St. Thomas Aquinas. He certainly engaged the contemporary philosophy of the day, the rediscovery of Aristotle, and he uh, he certainly engaged uh, uh, the Jewish philosopher Maimonides. He engaged the uh, Muslim uh, philosophers uh, as well, and I. So all of this idea of engaging with you know the the, the competing worldviews around us is not new to theology, and uh, so I don't know. This is from this motu proprio that Pope Francis presented. What can you tell us about this document? Yes, well, what he's uh, proposing, and, and the, the title itself uh, tells us something. The, the title of it is Ad Theologiam Promovendum, okay. in other words, to promote theology. And we have to appreciate that its purpose uh, was to revise the statute. So this is a practical element to this. It, it is intended to revise the statutes of the Pontifical Academy of Theology. Mm-hmm. And the title itself, Ad Theologium Promovendum, means to promote theology. Okay. So the goal of this, uh, and a motu proprio is a type of papal document, it means literally by my own hand, it's not the highest level, so it doesn't reach the level, for example, of an apostolic constitution or a papal encyclical. Pope Francis has made uh, the use of the motu proprio one of the primary instruments uh, for making a lot of changes uh, in the life of the Roman Curia, of uh, institutions, educational institutions, uh, and changes to canon law. I say that because this follows within that uh, trajectory, that arc that we have seen throughout uh, his pontificate. The goal, as he says, is to make the statutes of the Pontifical Academy of Theology more suitable for the mission that our time imposes on theology. And then he makes the point that theology can only develop in a culture of dialogue and encounter between different traditions and different knowledge, between different Christian confessions and different religions, openly engaging with everyone, believers and non-believers. So he's staking out ground here uh, that we need to be looking especially uh, at the context of our times. But then he uses a, a curious phrase here that uh, theology must experience, he said, and I'm quoting, a courageous cultural revolution. Now, we heard uh, the use of the phrase the long march yeah. uh, also during the Synod on Synodality. So there are references here that uh, some might at least interpret as somewhat uh, eyebrow raising. Yeah, certainly left wing 
politically left-wing terminology, revolutionary terminology from going back to the Bolshevik Revolution, for heaven's sake. Well, I think especially of Mao, uh, with the idea of a kind of cultural revolution. Yeah, the culture, that's right. Yeah, that, the Mao Zedong's cultural revolution. I, I don't... I, okay, so he, he wants this to be a fundamentally contextual theology. Uh, not entirely certain what that means. Um, theology is language, speech, uh, about God. And mm-hmm. so... Uh, Fundamental to doing theology, at least classical uh, theology, is the idea of divine. We have divine revelation. Uh, you know, that's our fundamental datum uh, for doing theology. And so, uh, the context. There's always a context in which people do theology. Uh, the culture in which they live, uh, the tradition of which they're a part. So I don't know. You know, to become. I don't see how you can avoid a fundamentally contextual theology. Not certain what that means, since in my right. estimation, theology is always done in a context. Uh, so I don't, I don't know, asking, asking us to do what you can't avoid uh, not doing. Well, he uses that phrase and has for many, many years, that space is bigger than ideas. And uh, for Francis, we see this heavy emphasis on pastoral, on that which is pastoral, and how we can evangelize within a variety of different contexts. But in particular, he has focused, as we have seen, on the challenges that we have in the face of modernity. Now, for Pope Benedict, uh, the, the, the great word or the phrase was the new evangelization. Right. And as you and I have even talked over the years, so the new evangelization, when you get down to the core of it, boy, it seems like a lot like the old evangelization. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Which makes sense because it works every time it's tried. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. The question is, are we actually trying? Yeah. Pope Francis is uh, taking, I think, some of the, the same concepts of the new evangelization, but articulating them in a way where the focus becomes much more on the context of modern society as a means of understanding through pastoral accompaniment the journey that people are making and how do we accompany them uh, to a deeper understanding or to have that encounter with Christ. It's why he uses that phrase that we have to interpret and read the gospel in these conditions Mm -hmm. in which people are living today. And he notes, what does he see? He sees geographical differences different social settings and different cultural environments. Mm -hmm. If we look at it that way, we begin to see two things. The first is how synodality, as far as Francis is concerned, is so important now in everything that he says and wants the church to do. Because synodality calls for this very thing, Mm -hmm. of this focus on accompaniment of listening. But then there's this other aspect uh, with, with Francis of how we go about re-envisioning a theology to aid in evangelization. And we can see as well how this is playing out in just the last two weeks since the end of the Synod, even less than that, in some of these decrees. We had this motu proprio that came out. We just had as well the, the recent decree on transgender identifying people who, in the question just, of whether they can be baptized. Yeah, I saw that. Um, so all of this is in some ways of the same cloth, and I think it's why, especially in the coming year, 
but especially going forward in this pontificate, we have to, I'm using the phrase that we have to be on a kind of permanent synodal footing because all of this is connected very tightly uh, into this process of synodality. And we have to see it through that lens in order to understand at least what he's trying to do. Um, I don't know if you got a, came across the interview with uh, Cardinal Christophe Pierre, the nuncio to the United States, that appeared in American Magazine, in which uh, he he makes statements which were actually fairly shocking to me, uh, given that he is a papal nuncio uh, to the United States, and um, he said that uh, he that U.S. bishops. I want to make sure I get the. I don't want to put words in his mouth, uh, but he says that, I mean, he says, first of all, we cannot say that there are bishops who are on the left and ones that are on the right. Mm -hmm. This is a false analysis. There are good men, but they're all struggling to find ways to evangelize in this new moment in history and to cope with the economic fallout from the abuse scandal. Okay, that I, I, I understand. No, no, no problem here with that. But he went on to say that he was surprised that the bishops of the United States tended to blame Pope Francis for things that have gone wrong. And I, I'm saying to myself, I've spoken to many, many bishops over the years I've been doing this, and I don't hear uh, this open resistance to Pope Francis among uh, U.S. bishops. Uh, they're usually pretty. Um, they're usually pretty respectful uh, and mm -hmm. careful in the way that they uh, talk about uh, the Holy Father. And I'm. I'm. I don't know where he's getting some of this experience. Uh, certainly he, he has more contact with bishops than I do. <laughs> but I don't quite get what he's, why he thinks he has to take this, make this statement. I don't see it. Yeah, well, I, I think he makes the observation, for example, uh, uh, as he says, uh, I would not concentrate on Francis so much because Francis is now seen as the big sinner by some. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he says that there are some priests, religious, and bishops who are terribly against Francis yeah. if he was a scapegoat for all the failures of church that's, or that's, of society. That's yeah. the quote I was looking for. Yeah. yeah. But he, he qualified that in an interesting way. Uh, and having attended all of the bishops' meetings now, uh, the USCCB, for many years, and having seen, I think, almost every speech that he's given to them, his frank talk to them has always been interesting. And even he said, I think it was as late as last year, that you know people are still, and this is what we just talked about, people are still struggling to understand what synodality is. Yeah, right. And, but he also makes the point, and this is echoing something that Francis has said, that we're in the church at a change of epoch. You know, and Francis talks about uh, this isn't uh, an epoch of change, it's a change of epoch. Yeah, yeah. And as he says, people don't understand it. So I think what he's trying to do here is to, I hate to use the word, but contextualize some of the things that have been happening, that the levels of uncertainty are now so high uh, that... We are seeing challenges that the bishops are facing, and there's just levels of fear uh, that 
the, the process of synodality uh, is not being understood properly. Uh, as he puts it, some people have a false idea of synodality, but not the Pope. So he goes back to the fact that the Pope has obviously a very clear vision, as you and I have talked about. Mm -hmm. yeah. But that's where he talks about then we cannot separate the good things and the bad. Uh, I, I think the church is like that. We cannot say there are bishops who are on the left and ones who are on the right. But he says they are all struggling. Yeah. And they're all struggling in their own corner. And I think he's trying to understand why, at least from his perception, there is opposition to Pope Francis. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, we're going to come back. There are a number of other stories that I want to make sure we, we got to. Um, th there's this one crazy story of a video being uh, made in, in Brooklyn, um, a video, music video shot in the Catholic Church. Uh, don't know how in the world this happened, but uh, it was a provo provocative music video. Uh, stories there in Catholic News Agency. I'm Al Crystal. We'll be right back. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health-sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. Would you get on a plane that doesn't have a pilot? Investing in passive index mutual funds may present the same issue. The Ave Maria mutual funds are actively managed by seasoned investment professionals to help you meet your investment goals in a morally responsible way. Ave Maria funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors could invest in the no-load Ave Maria mutual fund. You can learn more about the Ave Maria mutual funds at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org. Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic law school in the United States. Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law, unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit AveMariaLaw.edu. Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio. A conversation I had several years ago with uh, one of our listeners who wrote to me and said she was being challenged by a friend or a cousin or someone regarding the church and various teachings, especially on marriage and abortion and whatnot. And she said, I need the answers and I need them quickly because I want to quiet this person and shut them down. And I wrote her back and I said, I'm not going to give you the answers. I will give you some resources, such as the link to the Catechism of the Catholic Church. And I said, but you need to look these up and you need to read them over and you need to learn them because this is not going to be the last time that you're going to be challenged or questions about your faith. And what good is it if you're just barking answers to someone and you're not able to explain them charitably? 
This is a way we all should learn by doing the work ourselves. Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popchuk. The church teaches us that every Catholic family is meant to be a domestic church. That sounds nice, but what does it really mean? Well, a domestic church is a household of people united to each other and God through the sacramental life of the church and committed to living out Christ's sacrificial love in their relationships with each other and the world. The degree to which your family already lives this vision is the degree to which your family already is a domestic church. And the degree to which your family struggles to live that vision is the degree to which your family is called to become a domestic church. Every Catholic household is a domestic church that's called to witness to the already present but not yet fulfilled kingdom of God. To discover more ways your family can celebrate the liturgy of domestic church life, check out the newest editions of Parenting with Grace and visit CatholicCounselors.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me Family Man. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit CatholicCounselors.com. Good afternoon, I'm Al Trester. With me, Dr. Matthew Bunsen. Our focus has been the aftermath of the Synod on Synodality. Uh, going to move on to some other uh, topics right now. But Matthew, did you want to wrap up that Synod uh, discussion? Yeah, I, I, Pope Francis uh, gave a homily, of course, as he would, at the closing Mass. And he said something that, um, in some ways, you can look at as uh, an interpretive tool. Uh, and he may have been speaking, not just to the Church, but in particular to a lot of the Synod participants who may have arrived at this thing with ideas about changing the Church. And I say this because we know that there were discussions during the Synod on that very topic mm-hmm. of how the Church can change. We had, for example, the, the demands by a, a, what apparently was a small group uh, for the ordination of women, not just the diaconate, but to the priesthood. Yeah. And Pope Francis, in his homily, said something that, that really struck me. Uh, and he's talking about reform. And he said, we may have plenty of good ideas on how to reform the church, but let us remember to adore God and to love our brothers and sisters with his love. That is the great and perennial reform. To be a worshiping church and a church of service, washing the feet of wounded humanity, accompanying those who are frail, weak, and cast aside, going out lovingly to encounter the poor. I mean, that's a, those are themes that he has been yes. talking about from the very night of his election. Mm-hmm. But the use of the idea of we all have plenty of good ideas, because yeah. we all do. But let's remember where our focus needs to be, and that is to adore God and yes. to love our brothers and sisters. Yeah, very good. Very good. That was uh, from his closing homily, right? Yes, it was. Yeah. Yeah, yeah very good. Uh, don't want to spend too much time on this, but this, <laughs> right. that Brooklyn Bishop Robert Brennan is appalled that a church there was used to shoot a provocative music video. What in the world happened here? Uh, from what uh, is apparent, uh, it began popping up on social media, uh, and it's, I think it's a pop star singer by the name of Sabrina Carpenter, who was actually dancing in, in a most uh, blasphemous and provocative way on the altar mm. of the church, uh, I think it's Annunciation of the Blessed Virgin Mary in, in Brooklyn. And the, the video then was released uh, on, I think, October 31st. So once people realized what had happened, 
And uh, the, the pastor there, Monsignor, uh, was immediately peppered, uh, and the diocese itself then issued a statement that the Bishop Brennan was, quote, appalled uh, and undertook an investigation, and, and subsequently uh, there were suspensions and other things. And uh, to his credit, uh, the, the pastor there issued a very strong uh, apology. I, basically, I'm saying that uh, it's almost impossible to express his regret uh, at that this had happened at all. But significantly, uh, Bishop Brennan uh, took the next step and celebrated a massive reparation mm. uh, in response. Uh, and as he said, through the offering of this mass, um, he said he hoped that we had restored the sanctity of this church and repaired the harm. But the, this isn't the first time that something like this has happened over yeah. the years in which church spaces, both in the United States and in, in other places, uh, have been rented out sometimes with the uh, obliviousness of the, the pastors who were in charge of the parish, or perhaps they were told that, well, they're going to shoot a, a music video here, not realizing the significance or just how bad it could be. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, do we know who was, did they, do we know if they snuck in to do this, or did they actually have a contract? My understanding, and, and I, could, I could be completely wrong, but my understanding is that uh, things were organized ahead of time, okay. uh, and that uh, the, the diocese, once it learned, uh, did a review of this, and that, in fact, the, the production company was probably, uh, did not exactly get into great detail about this, but uh, made it clear that what was going to happen on the, in the church would be most inappropriate. Mm. Okay. Uh, Pope Francis is going to be going to Dubai in December to attend a climate change conference. Uh, what can you tell me about it? Yeah, this is uh, not a, a huge surprise uh, that Pope Francis, because he uh, has made, as we know, uh, the environment, uh, the creation, one of the, the linchpins of his pontificate. He just issued uh, the apostolic exhortation, Laudate Deum, that you and I talked about last month. Uh, so he will be taking part in what's known as a COP28. It's a, a climate conference, uh, and he will give an address. Uh, he'll be flying out uh, on December 1st. He'll be giving a speech on December 2nd uh, at the, what's called the, the Dubai's Expo City. Uh, there's a pavilion there, and then he will actually be taking part on the second after his speech in a number of meetings, what they call bilateral meetings, with all of the other attendees. So it's basically, uh, part of it is a, a, a faith-based engagement pavilion mm. uh, at what is a broader climate summit. So again, not a huge surprise that uh, uh, Pope Francis is going to attend this, given the focus, again, that he's talked about. But he'll be uh, rubbing shoulders with uh, King Charles uh, III of, of England, uh, the Indian Prime Minister, I believe, of course, Emmanuel Macron, whom he just met uh, in Marseille a few weeks back, uh, the UK Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, and, and various other officials. And, of course, the White House uh, will be there in some fashion. It's unclear yet whether or not President Joe Biden's actually going to attend. Okay. Uh do you know what do you know about this 
nun chasing and tackling an environmental <laughs> activist uh, on October 17th that's making the rounds on social networks. It's a pretty shocking scene. What, what is this about? Well, my understanding is that the, the this French community is, is trying to do some construction and climate activists, uh, as they are wont to do today, uh, were blocking uh, the progress. And uh, as you say, uh, she would be a uh, very... Welcome, I suppose, in like in a rugby uh, <laughs> <laughs> or in, in professional football. You know, National Football League could use her as, as a blocking tackle or at least a, a blocking back. <laughs> it was an impressive moment, uh, and it did go viral, as you say. But I, I think part of it is just there's a certain frustration uh, that has been building up. And we see this not just here, but across whole parts of Europe uh, where environmental activists are gluing themselves to the floor. They're uh, defacing paintings, uh, they're blocking traffic. Uh, so this is just part of that wider cultural moment, apparently. Uh, and this uh, young, this older nun apparently would have none of it. Uh, so she <laughs> took matters into her own hands. Okay. You know, we haven't talked much about uh, the situation in the Middle East and the brutal Hamas attack and now Israel's, yes. of course, response. Uh, I hear they have now agreed to uh, having short four-hour, I think four-hour breaks. Yes, for humanitarian uh, aid. Yes. Good. I'm glad they were able to see their way clear to do that. Yeah. Um, I, I, Christopher Ray, FBI director, said that uh, there have been religious attacks on Jew, anti-religious attacks on Jewish people, that. wildly disproportionate considering the community's minority status in the United States. Um, Do you know if uh, any of our uh, bishops or any members of the Curia have acknowledged this kind of uh, anti-Semitic behavior? Well, my understanding is that uh, there have been a number of statements, I think, from the USCCB on this topic uh, that uh, we're talking about. uh, We had the U.S. Bishops International Justice and Peace uh, Committee uh, reflecting on the ongoing violence in the Holy Land. Uh, Anti-Semitism, I think, is something of uh, great uh, importance uh, that it be resisted in every possible way. And I know that the, this is something that the, the, the bishops have been uh, very concerned about for some time. What is curious is that uh, in the face of these attacks, uh, we have seen the, the Biden administration uh, basically doubling down and, and focusing on um, Islamophobia. Uh, which I know has been um, a surprise to a lot of observers. Uh, And sort of in keeping in many ways with many of the priorities that they have. Now, having said that, we know also that the the Biden administration has been sharply criticized by members of the the most progressive or left-wing elements of the Democratic Party for, especially in the light of the October 7th uh, massacre and atrocities and just the staggering level of inhumanity uh, that we saw perpetrated by Hamas uh, when the Biden administration came out so strongly uh, against uh, the attacks and in its support for Israel. So I I think we're seeing, it will come as no surprise, uh, the levels of fragmentation, uh, but also uh, the rise, and this has been a surprise to a lot of people, just the sheer level of anti-Semitism. Uh, rearing itself 
in the United States mm-hmm. and even on college campuses. Yeah, yeah. Now, I, the Latin Patriarch of Jerusalem uh, was created a cardinal by Pope Francis this year. Yes. Um, and, you know, then he, he finds himself uh, leading the church through one of the bloodiest conflicts in the Middle East's recent history. That's right. Um, this this always puzzles me. I, mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm certainly sympathetic um, with Palestinians who long for a two-state solution, and uh, at the same time, when you have an act like we saw on October 7th, which is a violation of all the rules of war, which is uh, the commission of intrinsic evil, um, the slaughtering of uh, toddlers, raping of women, and done deliberately, proudly, photographed and um, videoed by the perpetrators themselves. I mean, this is an act of war that we've not seen uh, in a long time. There was no fog of war situation here. This was deliberate targeting of the uh, non-combatants. Yes. That puts, it seems to me, that does the Latin patriarch of Jerusalem who needs to be certainly concerned about uh, uh, Palestinian Christians, is he unable to condemn that kind of behavior by Hamas? Well, I think what uh, uh, he has uh, condemned the violence, uh, but I think you hit on something that's very important, and that is that um, it is a very difficult position right now for uh, Christians in the Holy Land, in particular Palestinian Christians. Yeah, yeah. Just by way of numbers, we know that there are about 148,000 Palestinian Christians uh, who live in that region. Uh, There are about 48,000 or so uh, in the West Bank, and then we have 1,000 Christians uh, living in Gaza. And from that standpoint, uh, we have seen the decline of the, the Christian presence in uh, Gaza. It was yeah. not that many years ago when it was 5,000. So we are seeing this um, perpetual decline. Mm-hmm. And he is in the difficult, the very difficult situation of trying to maintain a Christian presence uh, while also providing some form of hope for the, the Palestinians Christians who are living there. Yeah. Uh, and he also recognizes uh, that the fact is that neither side really is interested in perpetuating a Christian presence there. Right. Yeah, that's very true. No, that's right. Uh, the, we've seen this um, as, as uh, we think of Israel, of course, as a, a friend of America, but uh, not ne- they're not necessarily a friend of Palestinian Christians. That's so. right. <laughs> that's right. And, uh, and we know, of course, uh, Hamas and, and uh, Muslim-dominated uh, Palestinians don't care for uh, Palestinian Christians either. That's right. Well, Matt, I hear the music, Matthew. Thank you so much. Oh, uh, privilege to be time. with you. And uh, we'll talk again, Lord willing, very soon. Looking forward to it. God bless. Dr. Matthew Bunsen, again, we'll, the stories we talked about, we'll have follow-up in the Cresta Guest Archive. With so much going on in the world, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. What do you need to know today? 
Stay tuned to Crest on the Afternoon and Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio as we bring you the day's top stories and conversations from an authentic Catholic perspective. Ciao amici, Teresa Tamio here. If you're looking for something inspiring to give to someone this Christmas season, or maybe just a little stocking stuffer for yourself, make sure to check out the Ave Maria Radio online store. Plenty of books are sale to teach, inspire, and renew your connection with God. Speaking of sales, my book, Everything's Coming Up Rosie, is 25% off this month while supplies last. So go ahead over to AveMariaRadio.net and click on the bookstore. Happy shopping. Never miss an episode of Cresta in the Afternoon. Subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also listen on demand at AveMariaRadio.net and on the Ave Maria Radio app. Living the Beatitudes with Father Bjorn. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you're on a football team, you don't want to just run up and down the field holding the ball and never cross into the end zone and get a touchdown. We want to reach our goal, but there are a lot of obstacles, discouragement, and challenges along the way. Jesus' voice is the one calling us to say yes to him, to live the life that he is calling us to live. We have to choose one way or the other, choose him or not. But if we choose him, we will be opposed. We're going to have people challenge what we believe or call us crazy. But Jesus doesn't just say, come follow me, to follow a beatitude. He's calling us to be like himself. He is the beatitudes. He doesn't just say, do what I say. He says, come follow me. He's with us every step of the way, transforming our weakness into strength. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For more about the beatitudes, visit EWTNRC.com. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. I do want to remind you, because we covered so much ground with Matthew, and uh, and there's a lot of ground we didn't cover that I had prepared for, we have those articles, uh, you can follow up on them, by going to the Cresta Guest Archives. That's at AveMariaRadio.net. Just look up in the upper right-hand corner of the homepage there, you'll see my face, tap it. That'll take you to the archives, where we have, you know, programs that you can search for in the past. And you can also uh, get the contact information regarding our guests and, and follow-up uh, articles, uh, essays that we've uh, used in preparation for the interviews. And there's always quite a bit of that material when I talk with Matthew. So again, AveMariaRadio.net. See you on Monday. Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A Radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506 or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at AveMariaRadio.net.